If you enjoy Champions for Children, be sure to check out the new podcast from Nemours Children's Health, Well Beyond Medicine. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts or at NemoursWellBeyond.org to continue hearing the stories of anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. And now, the episode of Champions for Children you requested. Enjoy! Welcome to the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. I'm Carol Vassar, and I'd like to take a moment right now, right at the beginning of the podcast, to acknowledge you and your fellow Nemours associates. You're on the front lines of taking care of kids each and every day. That's a daunting task under normal circumstances. Of course, right now, we have a pandemic going on, and that's not exactly a normal circumstance. So that's why I offer you a humble thank you for being the true champions for children you are and working under some very difficult circumstances. Now let's meet a few of your colleagues, starting with music therapist Nicole Kirby from the Nemours Children's Hospital in Orlando. She grabbed her ukulele on the way to our impromptu interview so she could offer up a song. This is one that that I frequently play for our kids here at the hospital. See the line where the sky meets the sea, it calls me. No one knows how far it goes. If the wind in my sail on the sea stays behind me, one day I'll know. If I go, there's just no telling how far I'll go. Yay! Yay! Nicole Kirby, you are a music therapist. Yes. What is, and you're the only one here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of people, everybody I know who, well, just about everybody I know, loves music. What is music therapy? So music therapy is the use of music to achieve non-music related goals. And that really looks different for each of our patients. So some of our patients come in and they're very anxious about being here or they may be in pain. Um, sometimes they, it's their first time in the hospital and it's, it's a very different environment from them. So what I do is I help to make them feel a little bit more comfortable in the hospital. I can use music to help distract them. So either through active music making, I can teach them how to play the ukulele or the piano, or sometimes I do some relaxation exercises with them. So if they're feeling a little bit nervous or if they're in pain, I can help them to relax and calm down a little bit. And then for some of our kids, it's more of about being able to express themselves while they're here, um, help give themselves a little a voice um, in a place that maybe they don't get as much expression and as much say in some of the care that they get. In a typical day, do you see the full age range of kids? Yes. Oh, my gosh. I will see um, a, a, a baby one 
one hour and then I'll maybe the next hour I'll see a teen. I'll see a school age kid the next hour. So it really just depends on my schedule and who's in the hospital that day and who would really benefit from music therapy services. Different approaches for different ages? Yes, different instruments and different interventions based on based on those kids and what they'll like. So for a toddler, I'll usually bring um, little shakers and I have some really fun um, drums. One of them's my favorite is a lollipop drum. It looks like a big lollipop. So um, I'll bring that for someone who's a little bit younger. And then for someone who's older, we'll, I'll usually bring a ukulele or sometimes a guitar, piano. Um, we might get into a little bit more technology technology things. Um, So I have uh, a laptop and we can make some different backbeats. So rap backbeats, hip hop backbeats, reggae, pop, um, just depending on what type of music that that patient likes. There is something that you do that is called heartbeat recording, which Mm -hmm, is a little bit on the sadder side of the house. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so um, they don't always have to be (laughs) on the sadder side. Um, But yeah, they're utilized a lot in end-of-life situations. And I will just take a regular stethoscope. It's cut at the neck of the stethoscope and has a microphone in it. And it connects into our laptop. And I can pick up the heartbeat of the child. And then I will go back and edit any kind of static sounds, sometimes breathing sounds in it. Um, and I'll be able to provide that on a CD or email it to parents. So it is us- utilized a lot in end-of-life situations, but I have been able to use it for more positive situations as well. I've used it in the NICU. Um, the social worker and I do NICU parent support group every other week, and that's been one of the projects where the parents will decorate the CD case, and I will bring them one by one um, to record their baby's heartbeat. So sometimes they've gifted it to their significant others. A lot of them want to keep it for themselves. <laughs> That's a way that that we can make it a little more positive as well. What do you think the significance is of a heartbeat recording? The heart is really the center, the circulation. We, we pray with our hearts, hands over our hearts. We say the Pledge of Allegiance. What is the significance to parents in particular of having that heartbeat, and especially if the, the child has died? I think that just being able to hear something that their child was able to give to them, even when they're not there, is just so significant for parents. Just to, it kind of makes them feel a little closer to them, I think. Um, I think it's a way of of remembering a little bit more a part of them. music and heartbeats, I think we feel them as as well as hear them. So I think in a way, it's it's a way for them to feel a little bit closer to their child, even when they're not here. I can see when I give them the heartbeat recording and when I let them listen to it, um, just in that moment, they, they usually will tell me how thankful they are that they were able to be gifted this way to remember their child. A lot of times it is in a, in a sad time, um, in a time that they're they're grieving, so it might not be the first thing that they remember to come back to to give some feedback on, but I can always tell in that moment that those parents are very appreciative of the services we can offer them in that time. As a music therapist, Nicole has a very strong sense of music's healing power, but she says it doesn't have to come from just her. It could come from you, her fellow associates. Gosh, uh, just that I think that music really touches all of us um, and that 
every patient really can benefit from music in general. And even if you're not a music therapist, our, our nurses and our staff members can utilize music to help their patients feel a little bit more comfortable in the hospital. Um, there are some things that music therapists can do that other people can't do, but there's a lot of ways that you can still use music um, in your everyday life in the medical field to help your patients feel a little bit more comfortable and um, and calmer and, and help them out through this experience. Nicole Kirby is a music therapist at the Nemours Children's Hospital in Orlando. Telemedicine has taken on a new and much larger role given the situation surrounding coronavirus. But Nemours has been doing it for quite some time, according to Alfred Atonda. He's a doctor, surgical director of sports medicine at the A.I. DuPont Hospital for Children in Wilmington. So we have a very robust telemedicine program here. Um, I will give a shout out to Patrick Barth, who's one of our ENT surgeons, who's a medical director, and Sue Voltz, um, who is uh, the administrative director for telehealth here, because they've been very instrumental in the program and kind of taken me under their wing because I've latched on to them by adding a digital health component to my practice. Um, A lot of what we do in sports medicine you know, fortunately for us, a lot of our kids are kind of normal, healthy kids. They're young, just running around doing stuff, and, and they hurt things. A lot of them don't have special needs and chronic diseases. So, you know, when they go and see physicians at urgent cares and ERs, their primary care doctors, a lot of what they need is really my guidance and my expertise to, to evaluate their x-rays and evaluate their case. Um, so we've been able to leverage digital health and telemedicine to be able to disseminate knowledge to where those athletes are as opposed to always kind of bringing them in. So they don't have to physically be here like a lot of other of my, my partner's patients. Uh, so define telehealth. For those who are oh, right. completely unaware, what is telehealth? Yes. Yeah, so... Don't even get me excited. I start talking (laughs) mile a minute. So telehealth, telemedicine, it's basically utilizing technology and uh, remote communication to interface with patients who may not necessarily be in front of you. So you can do that via education. Uh, You can do that via direct-to-consumer, like talking directly to a patient who you've never met, like somebody's at home, they have a bellyache, they go on an app. Um, and you can talk to them and, and guide them. It's what, encrypted and it's yeah, it's, secure. Yeah, it's HIPAA and secure. And Nemours is a very robust program that's been around probably six or seven years or so. And they've done a fantastic job in, in all the different use cases. So what I do mostly is I do a lot of provider-to-provider consultations. So it's mostly to other doctors. It's hard for you sitting at home and your wrist hurts to talk to me. and like, well, I need x-rays. I need this. I need that. But a lot of times... You go to your med- your own, we call it the medical home. So you go to places in your community. Um, they may not have specialists such as myself, but they have physicians and other providers that can, that can triage you and, and take care of you provisionally. So now what we've been doing with our telemedicine program is it's a lot easier to move knowledge and expertise and data as opposed to move people. So what I do is I interface with these doctors that could be 100 miles from here. I can review images. I can look at the parents. I can counsel them. I can make sure they have appropriate expectations such that when they eventually do follow up here, they've already kind of heard what's going to happen. So their expectations are managed. Um, they're not sitting at home for five days worried sick as to how serious this injury is going to be. Um, and also it helps the outside provider because now they've been educated a little bit. It helps them kind of manage the patient and get them home, you know, out of the ER, out of the urgent care. So we've been doing a lot of that lately. I wanted to share one quick story, sure. if that's okay. You know, I had a mom who is basically from about 30 miles from here. 
uh, her son was playing football and he hurt his elbow and it was swollen and, you know, everybody's kind of panicking. So basically they went to their local urgent care. That urgent care was like, oh my God, that's a huge injury. We don't, we can't staff that here. You have to go to this subsequent urgent care. So they went to the subsequent urgent care. They got x-rays. They saw what the actual injury was and they said, oh, you know, I think that may need surgery. You need to go to your local ER, which was in that community. So they go to the local emergency room and they're seen and evaluated. And then they're trying to figure out what to do. Like, where do they send the patient? Do they transfer them? Remember, it's an emergency room, right? So people are sick, people are dying. So this kid is probably lower on the totem pole of prioritization. Mind you, he was at the first urgent care. It was 15 minutes, the second one for an hour, the first emergency room for almost probably two to three hours. He spent an hour in transit on an ambulance because he was told he needed surgery and he was transported to our hospital. And then he gets here and it's like, oh, well, that may need surgery, but it's nothing urgent. So here's just a splint and go home and we'll see you in our outpatient clinic and we'll talk about surgery. So you can imagine the frustration on the part of the mom. You can imagine the fear in the child spending six, seven hours being transported. And to us, it was like, oh, it's just another blah, blah, blah fracture. We'll just splint it and send it home next and you just move on. And that happens all the time. I actually have been monitoring our, our transfers that we get in via the transport system because we can now utilize telehealth to obviate that. So you can imagine at that very first urgent care, if there was an infrastructure in place where I could have looked at his x-rays and said, oh, it's kind of a big injury. It'll probably need surgery, but it's not going to be today. Here's a splint. Go home. Come back in your own car in the morning after a good night's sleep. And then, you know, we'll talk and we'll do what we need to do. It could have saved a lot of physicians and providers' time. It could have saved a lot of resources. Needless to say, the mom received a bill from, you know, the ambulance company for thousands of dollars. It's things like that that our telehealth program is really trying to reimagine. Because in 2020, there's no reason why that has to happen to a kid with no chronic illness or no serious special needs who just has an x-ray who needs to be interpreted for someone like, by someone like me. So we're moving towards that direction where we can really interface with the hospitals in and around probably like a 50 to 100-mile radius. We're working with our transport team, our telemedicine team, our value-based care team, our patient experience team, because you can imagine all these different stakeholders want to see this process reimagined. And in the healthcare climate, in a fee-for-service world, I mean, everybody does make money from all of the pit stops. But that doesn't mean we, we can't rev- revamp and kind of enhance and streamline that process. And that's something that I've kind of taken on as it's kind of orthopedics, but it's more of just kind of digital health innovation that's been very rewarding to me to try to prevent things like that from happening, you know, all the time. It's the anxiety and the fear, the unknowing. Every step of the way, they're not actually talking to an orthopedic specialist. They're hearing things, bits and pieces, but they don't ultimately know exactly what's going to happen. And it's not even about the elbow or the knee or the hip. It's more like, well, when can I go back to school? When can I play soccer again? When can I drive my girlfriend to the movies again? Those are the real important questions. And, you know, I can answer a lot of that because I deal with these sorts of injuries all the time, but a lot of those providers can't. And it frustrates them, I think, too, because they want to be able to help and provide, you know, really specific, accurate information. So by really 
taking that process and turning it upside down and moving knowledge and data, I think it would really, really help our system and how we, you know, triage people who aren't necessarily here. Um, and that's not just for orthopedic patients. That's for patients of, of, with all injuries and illnesses and, and problems. Dr. Alfred Atanda is the Surgical Director for Sports Medicine at the A.I. DuPont Hospital for Children in Wilmington. Peter Phelan is a research scientist and a research lab manager for the Nemours Children's Hospital in Orlando. His labs are located at the University of Central Florida Burnett School of Medicine, and it's there where he and his fellow associates do basic research science, the very beginning stages of research that can lead to clinical trials in humans and ultimately a new treatment for cancer or asthma, cystic fibrosis, diabetes, or musculoskeletal disease. It's a process that takes time, says Peter. This is 100% critical for what we want to do in the future. So on average, NIH studies have shown that it can take 15 to 20 years for anything that we discover or come up with or develop in the lab as a basic science discovery. It can take 15 to 20 years before that ever sees the clinic. So some of the stuff we're doing now may or may not come to fruition in two decades. So what's his lab working on right now? We have some very, very cool projects going on uh, that deal with pediatric cancers. Pediatric cancers in the grand scheme of cancers in this world are still considered rare cancers. It's, we would call them a vulnerable population or underserved population. But nevertheless, it's our children. So everything we're doing in the basic science lab, there's not enough people doing research on it. Is that because there is a funding gap? Primarily. So basic science is always chasing the funding. You don't go into basic science to get rich. Um, You do it because you're good at it and you want to solve problems. Um, And quite frankly, there is limited to very little money associated at a federal level with uh, pediatric health. Um, from a research perspective, and I say a lot from like a cancer perspective. Um, Now, we being here at Nemours... It because of our endowment, you know, because Nemours has committed to funding basic science now more than ever, produce uh, preliminary data, good foundation data, you know, fundamental foundation for data, and then we can pursue additional outside resources, outside funding, and then hopefully start opening the door more into federal funding. But it's still very much a challenge. I use one of our projects right now as a perfect example. NIH does not like what we call fishing expeditions. Okay, this is where you don't you don't really know what's going to happen. You have an idea, don't know if it's going to work or not. So let's go see what happens. But you want to try it. But we want to try it. I mean, that's sometimes how we get discoveries. We can only have serendipity strike so many times. But sometimes you just got to go out and say, "Hey, well, I've got compound A and compound B. Let's see what happens when we mix them together." I have no idea what the outcome is. It may not work. Most of the time, it probably won't work. That's why NIH doesn't doesn't like to do that. Um, but we have a our current project right now. Uh, one of our big um, poster children, you know, poster projects that I like to talk about is Zika virus and trying to kill pediatric cancers or treat pediatric cancers. This whole notion, completely ludicrous. You never would have gotten money from a federal agency to say, hey, yeah, I want to try to see if I can use Zika virus as a therapy. I mean, we're worried about it right now, causing hydrocephaly and having all these negative negative outcomes in developing fetuses. Why on earth would do you think we could ever use this for 
treating a pediatric cancer. So this was truly a fishing expedition. Um, one of our investigators had this idea, you know, let's try it. You know, it was founded in some logical science that was current at the time. And so we went and tried it. And three years later, we're now treating mice with carrying human tumors. And I mean, some of our initial data, we're going to be talking about it here more internally at our enterprise-wide lab, lab meeting updates. But I mean, tumors in mice that we implanted, it's killing them. It's killing the tumors up upwards of 90% or more. We do have to do some more experiments to repeat this to make sure it's consistent and work out some more um, details on it. But yeah, this this went from truly an idea and observation of what the virus is doing normally to cause hydrocephaly and the cells that it's killing to, hey, this this cancer over here we see in children called neuroblastoma, well, this is a cancer of those cells that Zika is actually killing in a, in a fetus, developing fetus. And so that's kind of what would happen if we put the virus on these neuroblastoma cells. And lo and behold, it's killing them in a dish. And we did this with many different neuroblastoma cell lines because that's where we start as a basic science. We have these immortalized cell lines we work with. And in almost every case, it was killing them like completely wiping them out after a couple of days, after a few days. We did have some that it did not work in or worked at a very low level, and we've actually we've discovered why, and that lends to the biology. But um, what we're finding is, is that in these cells that cause most of the problems, the more aggressive ones, the virus is killing them. So there's potential here. There's potential here. And we've taken, so the next step after we do that in a dish, so we grow cells in a dish, then the next step is we move into animal testing, and we use mice for this. And so... That is showing very well. You know, I mean, some of these experiments take us four months to do, so it's a slow process. You know, it can be four or five months to do a single experiment. But um, we just finished one recently, and we have a lot of animal, and it's very consistent that the virus was killing the tumor that we implanted under the mouse skin, um, that it was killing the tumors after single injection, two weeks and it was killing it killed 90% of the tumors 70 to 90% of the tumors and we will let the experiment go longer next time we just wanted we just stopped it at that point so there's nothing indicating that it wouldn't keep going and completely kill the tumor lots of great research going on at Nemours thank you Peter Phelan for catching us up so there you have it, another edition of the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. And we thank you for listening. Peter Debbie, Deborah Griffin, J.L. Puckett, Jackie Williams, and I would love to get your feedback on the podcast. Send your comments, your feedback to podcast at Nemours.org. That's podcast at Nemours.org. Subscribe to the podcast today on your favorite podcast app or ask your smart speaker to play the Champions for Children podcast. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions in Fall River, Massachusetts. I'm Carol Vassar. Thanks for being with us and listening to the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. Take care. <laughs>